Okay, we have saved the best wine for last. Don't tell the <laughs> speakers that I'm saying this, but uh, <laughs> Kathy Baldock is the author of Walking the Bridgeless Canyon, which is just one of the best titles um, for this area that I that I can thinking think of. Walking the Bridgeless Canyon, kind of like doing the impossible, which is how it yeah. feels sometimes. Um, Kathy's an LGBT advocate, a speaker, an educator, and she's the executive director, founder of Kenyon Walker Connections. So you can look up Kenyon Walker Connections and get all the info about Kathy. I first met Kathy, I think, in 2014. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was shortly after my book came out, and we had right. our drama in Ann Arbor, and Emily and I were just kind of in in. Uh, um, in a state, in a state, in a state, and um, there were just a handful of us operating in the post-evangelical evangelical sector, um, and it was just uh, so so helpful to to meet Kathy and to follow her work at some at some distance over the years. Kathy will be sharing her original historical research into how the Revised Standard Version of the Bible introduced one of the most egregious translation errors in history. Her research is coming out in a book form uh, pretty soon. I think you can reorder it. I, I'll yeah. pre-order it. I've already pre-ordered a copy, and I believe the title is "Forging a Sacred Weapon." So Kathy can give us any details on that. Um, oh, Kathy, get yes. the time. Is it my turn? Is it my turn? Your turn. Go oh, for okay. it. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Um, I'm in. I'm in the beautiful Sierra Nevada mountains in in Northern Nevada. So right out this window, and I know Matthew and Alejandro are listening or watching. They've been here before and I have a gorgeous view of the mountains and I'm right near hiking trails. There's about 20 hiking trails within 10 minutes of my house and Tahoe's right over the ridge. And this is what keeps me calm because this work uh, and the opposition and the frustration sometimes of this work, um, it, if I, I think if I were in any other setting, I wouldn't be as calm because I'm actually pretty calm for what I do. So that's where I'm situated in, in Reno, Nevada. And I live here with my dog, but now I, I'm watching three others. So if you hear barking, uh, excuse us, but this is, this, this is my life right now. So where this started is my, my first book is Walking the Bridges Canyon, as Ken said. And it's a, it's a good book. And um, the next book expands on it. So like where there are seven pages here, the next book is 70 pages. I've expanded everything, but this is still, I still love this book. And so I would, after I finished that book in 2014, I started teaching. I wanted to, to help people understand the history of the book. I think that's what I'm bringing to the table that's different than other people bring to the table is I put the Bible and cultural changes into historical perspectives. If you see my teachings, I teach on timelines. And so people that are visual, more visual, um, really start to grasp what I'm saying, because it's not just the Bible that has caused pain and stigmatization and ostracization of the LGBTQ plus community. It's a lot of things. It's not understanding human sexuality. It's politics. It's legal systems. It's medical misunderstandings. Um, it's cultural movements. It's even um, 
political movements within countries. It's actually pretty complex, which is what the next book is. I'm trying to follow, or I do follow from prehistoric times, from the beginning of the agricultural, the, that first agricultural revolution. And I follow through time, um, male and female relationships, marriage, sexuality, procreation, and how same-sex behavior was seen. So that's what I'm good at. I'm good at looking at how those things change through history. So when I would teach from the first book, I would get to this point, you know, and, and typically I would teach, I mean, my preferred way is a six to eight hour um, session, which sounds like a lot, but people get really drawn into it and you learn a lot. And by the, I would not even get to the Bible until, you know, starting at 10 o'clock in the morning, I would not even get to the Bible until two or three in the afternoon, because all these other things were impacting how we were seeing human sexuality or not understanding it. So when I would finally get to the Bible, I, I would always teach that, look, look at this timeline in history where the word homosexual was finally introduced into any Bible in any language was the 1946 New Testament of the Revised Standard Version. And so my understanding through, through those few years was my go-to would be to say, what did the people that were on the team understand about human sexuality? Because not much was understood when they were working on it. So the next thing I would logically ask is, when were these people born that were on the team? And that was fairly easy information to find, to find the members of the translation team. The earliest person on the translation team was James Moffat. He was born in Glasgow in 1870. And the, the latest one was born in 1917. So yes, they were all white men. Yes, by the time they did this work, they were all in their late 50s, 60s, 70s. One of them even died before the, 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 even the New Testament came out. But they were all men that were young men at the turn of the 20th century. So you have to understand that these are young and some of them, were young men at the turn of the end of the 19th century. So when you put that in context and you understand how much they did not know about human sexuality, that should tell us a lot about how they approached these words. So I believed without any proof, but just understanding historical context, understanding what was known about human sexuality, knowing that the word homosexual or homosexuals in this case had never been in the Bible before, that I speculated that this decision that they made to combine up, by now you've heard the words um, Malakoi and Arsenikoitai, to take those words and combine them, first to compress them into one word, which is problematic in itself, but to then translate that one word to homosexuals why did they do that? Why did they make that choice for the 1946 translation New Testament and the 1952 full Bible? So I just made this assumption, but in this conversation, you can't make assumptions, but I thought it was a safe assumption. And then into my world came Ed Oxford. Ed Oxford had come to a couple of my longer presentations 
he was still semi-closeted. He was in his late forties and gay and um, had been, um, had, had gone to seminary, was a youth pastor, had been a missionary for the American Baptist Church to Japan. And when he, by the time he sat through my second session, he thought I might be telling the truth. So he was pretty emotional when I first spotted him. And he said he couldn't believe that he had never heard in seminary that this word was only introduced in the Bible in 1946. I have to look at the time so I don't, okay, now I've got the time. Um, so he said, why has nobody ever talked about this? So what Ed decided to do was, Ed's a financial planner in Long Beach, California. And he decided to go and buy Bibles, lexicons, commentaries, as old as he could find and afford and start collecting them to see for himself to see if this word homosexual was in the Bible, and if not, what were the what were the words that were in there? And so, by now, Ed has amassed an incredible, a very impressive um, library of old books. They're on, they're in most rooms of his house. He has beautiful English um, bookcases that he ordered actually from England to house some of these in some of the rooms. And when I heard he was doing this, and I went to visit him. I was just so fascinated with what he had collected. Um, and the joke is that, you know, I would go visit his books and not him. I mean, I love Ed, but man, who does, who collects that sort of book? So we became friends pretty quickly. And his next pursuit was to say, why did this team head by a man named Luther Weigel, who had been the Dean of Yale Divinity in the twenties, thirties, late twenties, he started. 30s, 40s, right through the 40s. He was the dean of Yale Divinity, and he was the head of this translation team. Why did he make this decision? Well, in Ed's investigation, then he found that when Luther Weigel died, he died in 1976. His entire archives were then logically housed at Yale University at the Sterling Library. And if so much comes, um, we were talking in, I was doing a TRP session, Reformation Project session yesterday. Uh, Boswell comes out of Yale. Um, Dale, Dale Martin comes out of Yale. So much is out of Yale. And, and these papers were sitting at Yale. And what surprises me is these papers have been available since 1976 when Luther Weigel died, and they've been archived there the entire time holding all of these hidden treasures. And I can't see the list, but I suspect many of you are under an age where you have never used microfilm in your life before. And you think that, you know, if you want to know the answer to anything, you take out your smartphone and you Google it. That is so not the truth. There's so much that's hidden in archives that have never been digitized. And that is the case here. These RSV papers have been sitting there for decades. And Ed and I both know, because we've seen the lists, how few people have ever accessed them. And nobody before us, that's a big zero, have ever gone through all 94 boxes, you know, like banker boxes, accountant boxes, 
all 94 boxes and all 22 rolls of microfilm. It's about 130,000 pieces of documents. That's a lot of stuff. So when Ed said to me that these papers were housed at Yale University, and he, you know, he didn't even finish the sentence. He was trying to ask me what I want to go. Of course I wanted to go. So we booked a time to go in September of 2017, 2018. Can't remember the year now. COVID messes everything up, right? I can't remember years anymore. And so we booked this time. And it's very amusing because both I was convinced and Ed was convinced that everybody in the world was trying to access these papers and that when we got there, because we only had five days, when we got there, that we would be um, battling our way to the front to get these papers, right? And if you do Enneagrams, I am like the most solid eight on the planet. Do not get in my way when I have an agenda. I want those papers. So I was calling and Ed was calling. And it was like the archivists were almost laughing at us. And they were laughing at us was because nobody looked at these papers. Nobody wanted to get any of these papers. Nobody had asked for these papers. So here I was, you know, trying to (laughs) the best that I could do and kindly threaten people that those boxes better darn well be there. (laughs) So of course they were there. So we started going through the RSV. I want to give you a tiny bit of background on the RSV first and why it was even uh, created. So it was it, it came from the base text, uh, text of the American Standard Version from 1901. And that Bible came out of the 1885 revised version that was created in England, an English, England, English version in the 1870s in the Church of England. So we have the English Standard Version, the revised version, and then we have the American Standard Version. And it had a 25-year copyright on it. So after 1901 plus 25 years, the publisher, which was Thomas Nelson, had the copyright and could then print a new Bible. And the idea was to make a Bible that was accessible to the American English language. And they also wanted to incorporate some of the papyri that had been discovered in the the early 1900s, late 1800s, that were not part of... um, part of the history of the the King James version, the 1611 version. 1611 version was the most popular. So what they were trying to do was to try to create an American language accessible version of the Bible. So that was, they were agreed to it by 1929. They had their first meeting. And so right away it was, so Thomas Nelson hired the International Council of Churches which changed their name midway. And there's so much hidden within there when the the McCarthy era happens, that this Bible was created by the National Council of Churches, International Council of Churches. People started calling it a communist Bible. There's fascinating stories all tied up in this. All of these little details matter. They really matter. But you're not going to get the background on them today, but they're, they're fascinating details. And so International Council of Churches organizes the American Bible Committee, and they put Luther Weigel at the top. So I said Luther Weigel was a a dean, a dean of divinity at Yale University. And he came to fame, not just because he was a dean there, but he also started um, the Sunday school movement for children. Um, He had, he, he wrote curriculum for Sunday schools for children. 
And he wrote this little book, which I found, you know, for almost nothing on eBay because who cares about it? But um, he wrote this little book and then he he moder- modified it for the Methodist and the Lutheran and all those things. And for you authors out there, his royalty on each book was one penny, one penny. But with that one penny, he built a, a summer home in New Hampshire. And in when we went into the archives, we at one point even found um, some notes. They saved everything. Some notes from Weigel to his wife saying what cans of soup he wanted her to bring up to the cabin for the summer, like his favorite cans of Campbell's soup. Those were even in the archives. I'm telling you, they kept everything. So when you start seeing that stuff, you say, okay, I know I'm going to find what I need here, which is I was, we were looking for contemporary notes to the meetings, right? You would think that there would be notes that says, okay, the gang is working on first Corinthians six, nine through 10 today. What do you say it should be? What do you say it should be? What do you say it should be? You would absolutely think those notes would be there. And you know what? They weren't. Nothing of the sort was there. There were lists of words that were going to change from the AS, the King James, to the ASV, to the proposed Revised Standard Version. And on no variations of this list do we ever see the words homosexual, sodomite, catamite. Those words didn't appear. And it was pretty disheartening. But this is the guy, Luther Weigel, headed that team. But back to the team first before I go to the papers. So the team had very prestigious people on the team. At the head, um, (laughs) Luther Weigel, and we even saw the lists of names of people he wanted on the team. He didn't get everybody he wanted. He wanted somebody, someone named James Ropes, who was a quite famous theologian of the time. And Ropes didn't want to be on the team because he wanted it to, he wanted them to include the information from the new papyri, but he wanted the King James language. So there were people that didn't agree with the 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 intent of the revised standard version team, but some two powerful people on the team behind Weigel were there were two. There was Edgar Goodspeed, and Goodspeed was um, he was born in 1871, second oldest on the team, um, and he's American Baptist, University of Chicago. He authored the Goodspeed Bible in 1923 New Testament and then 1931 the Old and New Testament. Uh, the entire translation was by him, and he. His translation of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 13 in the Moffat Bible, I don't think I have it here, but I what he translated that was um, those given to the sensual vices, not homosexuals, those given to sensual vices. And it's a very interesting conversation. And Ken and I were having it just beforehand of what Arsenikai, Koitai, and Malakoi had been translated all through history before um, before it became, uh, before it was translated as homosexuals. So that's how he translated it. Another very important person on the team was um, James Moffat. James Moffat had also done a Bible and we'll get to what his translations was. He turns out to be a very important person on this team. So the team was assigned in 1929 to do the work. And they first pick Matthew and Genesis to start with. And then the depression hit and the International Council of Churches wisely said, this is not where we should be investing our money. We should be giving our money to people that are in need. So the work stopped for several years. The work only reinstituted in about 1936, 37. You can see all of these in the papers. 
There's this is not written anywhere. None of this information is written anywhere. You have to go into the archives and see um, minutes of meetings. You have to you just have to dig through these pieces of paper. So the work begins again in 1936. And by 1937. Um, yeah, so Goodspeed did say sensual, the sensual or given to unnatural vices. And the other person that had done a Bible beforehand, as I said, was James Moffat. And his translation of 1 Corinthians was the Catamites from Malakoi and the Sodomites for Arsenikoitai. So again, in all of this paperwork, we saw absolutely no discussion of the insertion of the words, no discussion. But what I could find was, so let me just show you, let me just show you the Bibles first of all. So here is the 1946 uh, version of the New Testament. I have that. So here's the New Testament. And then here's a 1952 version of the entire Bible. So these are the Bibles that we're talking about. So, um, so there's absolutely no indication in these notes. But when you go back through the notes, what you can find, what we did find was, so a lot of work going through microfilms. What I can find are the members of the, the first Corinthians teams. It was three people. It was Henry Cadbury from Harvard, uh, a guy named Clarence Craig from Oberlin School of Theology, and Luther Weigel was on the team. But what we find then when we go further into the, into the records, we see that 1 Corinthians was approved of the translation with the word homosexuals in there, no explanation. It was approved in 1940. It was then again approved in 1941 with very few changes and not to our text of interest. And it was finalized in June of 1942. So the work on 1 Corinthians, to put it in context of time, is done between 37 and 1940 and done. So when they're looking at the culture, okay? So they're 15 men sitting in a room, looking at the culture, who have been raised with no information on sexual, sexual variations with homosexuality, especially in the United States, not so much in Europe, but especially in the United States. And historically, we've just come off a time in the United States. It's, if you haven't studied it at all, it's a really interesting period of time called, there were sex panics. And to sell newspapers, yellow journalism, to sell newspapers, any kind of crime somehow turned into a lurid sex crime. Yes, there were sex crimes, but they rose to the top. And sex crimes just sold newspapers. There was a huge sex scandal in Boise, Idaho, that made Life magazine. And this was in 1928, 29, and 30. So there were these sex crimes and sex panics panics happening just in that section of time. And the assumption was it was these homosexuals that were doing any crime against children and any kind of interaction be between men was perceived as a crime. So homosexuality, though a lot of people couldn't have said what it was, was a crime 
it was not deemed technically yet a mental illness, but it was thought to be a mental illness, certainly a sexual perversion, not associated with love, and absolutely associated with sexual excess. So you've got these men in this room, right? So they're faced with these two words. Their task is to modernize the Bible, the King James. So they look into the culture and they say, what act do we see in our culture that is not procreative, that is excessive, that is criminal, that is an aggressive behavior that men are doing? And the word that comes to them is homosexual. There's no malice, no malice associated with this. This is just informed ignorance. They have no understanding of human sexuality. Nobody had understanding of human sexuality. Very, if, if, if a pastor, even in the 40s and 50s, had a, a homosexual come into their office and say, um, I need help, no pastor before the 70s, before the 1970s would have said, this is an issue that God can help you with. You need to pray this away. Every one of them would have seen this as a mental illness, certainly by that time, a mental illness that a therapist should work with. This was not an issue for God. This was an issue for a therapist. So everything changed at the end of the 1970s. So there was no malice associated with this where these gentlemen were saying, let's go get the dirty, filthy gays. None of that is going on. So they put it in the Bible. The Bible comes out. No one seems to even notice it's there. It, this sounds insane, but it comes out in 1952, right at the height of the McCarthy era. And McCarthy and a few other, the stories in the book, in this section are so good. And I know where people are going to laugh because the stories are so ridiculous. But what people thought of the RSV team, they thought they were communists. They, because, they thought because they took Mary's virginity away by saying that she was a young woman, a young girl. And that when the centurion of the cross says, surely you are a son of God, they took Jesus's deity away. So this Bible was also by some sects, some really fundamentalists called the communist Bible, the red Bible. So people were split. People were focused on the communist aspect of this Bible. And then other people, people, people saw it as a, a legitimate, well-worked out Bible. Tons of controversy. Almost nobody notices it. Two people during that period are on record for having noticed it. I found in the archives a postcard from a pastor in, um, in Canada who said, he basically says, I noticed that you translate Arsenikoitai as homosexual here, but when you look at First Timothy, you don't translate it as homosexual. Like, what's the difference? And then here's just a sentence, which is just so unbelievable to read to this day. He says, you know, why did you use the word homosexual there? And he says, he ends his letter by saying, thank you for your, for your attention to this, in parentheses, probably insignificant point. You know, it was, 
he only wrote because there was, he said there was a family who had in their, in their immediate family homosexuality. He was just curious. So he was curious. And the other person is Derek Sherwin Bailey, who wrote the first book on homosexuality and religion um, in England in 1955. And he says, he says in just one paragraph of his book, he says, if the RSV doesn't team doesn't address this mistranslation, because his book was all about why are we in England seeming to only apply morality laws to female prostitutes and male homosexuals? What, what is going on here? What is the Bible saying about these issues? So he says, if we don't deal with this, this is going to be problematic if the RSV team doesn't, doesn't look at this mistranslation. <clears throat> but in the files, nobody else is on record. Very disappointing. So we had gotten through the 94 boxes of information with no hints as to how this happened. And on the third day, we started going down into the basement where the 22 rolls of microfilm were too. That's my time. Okay. So, um, so we went down there and we started going through the microfilms. And a few hours into it, you know, we, we each took a, a roll and started going, you have to go through slowly because you don't have no idea what's in there. But by that point, we were pretty disappointed. And we brought a documentarian with us who um, filmed and took photos. And I'm very grateful for that because history happened and who, who was to know. And um, midway through the afternoon, I was going through the microfilms. And for the first time in hundreds, well, by that point, probably 60,000 sheets of paper, I saw the word homosexual. So we stopped everything. And I asked Ed to come over to the microfilm machine where I was at. Hadn't read anything, but I saw the word homosexual. And then what I found was a series of four letters, which have never been found before. And again, they're sitting right there. So this series of four letters, it starts with a letter written in October 22nd, 1959. And the word homosexual appears in the verse. And then in the first line, he says, following the word homosexual, I discovered the footnote, the two words are combined. And following is this, this is pretty impressive. I mean, I know you can't see it, but what you can see is that it's a quite complete letter, right? Look, single spaced, filled with theology, filled with theology, and then suggested reading. <laughs> In the, in the appendix, in the addendum. So it's a full three-page letter, single-spaced, where this person who signs his name is David Sheldon from a P.O. box in Lenoxville, Quebec, says, I think you got this wrong. And then he goes through and he looks at his Bible and he proves it. He says, I, you got this wrong. And at one point he says, um, um, you need to correct this. Because he says, I know some homosexuals and these homosexuals would die for the church and they would die for their love of Christ. And you've got this wrong. And then he says, and if you don't correct it, the, the Bible is going to be used as a sacred weapon against the most vulnerable of people. And even the clergy will start using the Bible against these people. So that's where the title of the book comes from, A Sacred Weapon. So he writes this. And when I read it, I only got to down to here and I'm on the video saying, this guy's gay. This guy's got to be gay because there's no way a straight person in 1959 could have written a letter like this. 
It was so impressive that this letter could be read from a pulpit today as theological proof and it would pass. It's that good. But he wrote it in 1959. And so I was convinced he was gay, but he never says he's gay. So then not long after October 22nd, November 3rd, he gets a letter back. And in the letter from Luther Weigel himself, the head of the translation team, Luther Weigel essentially says, I get it. You know what? We never should have combined those two words. You're right. The wrong word is homosexual. How would you, because there are homosexuals that are not having sex. He said, how would you feel if, if, I, if, I, if we use the, the phrase, um, I, I'm not going to find it fast enough, those who, in, uh, yeah, those who indulge in homosexual practices. So he says this. And then he, and then, so he writes a very full letter. This is the only document that exists as to why the RSV team used the word homosexual. And all his documentation, where he goes through page by page, he's mostly focused on Malakoy. He's somewhat focused on literature and he doesn't do any theology. And then the, the gold is at the end where he attaches a page where he says all of the sources where the word's been combined up is written very tiny in his handwriting, very tiny. But up here, there's some gold and we'll get to the gold later. But he writes in Greek, the word arsenikoitai, and he's mostly addressing malakoi here, but he writes in Greek arsenikoitai and then a definition from the side here. He writes this in 1959. He tells us exactly why they used that. There's no other documentation. So, and we'll come back to it. And then David writes back to him and says, no, you've got it wrong. Whoops, I lost myself. Uh, you've got it wrong. It's not those who don't indulge in homosexual practices. He says, it's people who indulge in homosexual vices. Vices at the time meant rape. Those who homosexually rape, just like those who heterosexually rape, those who impose their sexuality on other people, those are the people that are the problems. Okay. So that's what David is saying. So he says, I would more support those who participate in homosexual vices. So then he writes that letter. And then in this, he gives us a clue as to who he is. He says, very kind letters back and forth, very not like correspondences are today, like I have with some pastors. I'm always nice. Some of these pastors, they're not so nice. So, um, so he, he says, um, I may only be a seminary student, but I think you're wrong. And your decision to do this was ridiculous. He says the word ridiculous. And then he says, I love your work. I love everything you've done. And then the final letter comes back. The correspondence were done by December 3rd, December 3rd, 1959. He says, I'm going to take your suggestions and I'm going to put them in the file. And when we do a revision, we'll look at your suggestions. Okay. So put that aside. So why if in 1959, they knew they made a mistake. The next Bible that came out was the next RSV that came out was RSV-small-r. 
and it came out in 1971. It, no, it came out, the, it came out, um, that one came out in the, I think the early 60s, they put a small R on it. It was just a slight revision. So why did it take so long for this Bible to change? The RSV revised came out in 1971, and it indeed was changed to sexual perverts. But we are talking from 1959, knowing you made a mistake, to 1971, changing the words in the Bible. Now, that would have been a logical question that anybody should have asked, and I didn't have the answer to until I went to the archives again. I have asked, one of the things we did before we left Yale was we did, we were very courteous to the archivists every day. And when we left the six people we were working with, we gave them individual thank you notes and we bought them cookies. So that's the way you treat archivists and librarians when you think you need them again. No, that's just the way you treat people because they're kind. So now three times I have asked my interlibrary loan person who now knows exactly who I am with the Yale interlibrary loan people, can I borrow the microfilms? So the first time I expected them to send me one microfilm at a time, they didn't because nobody had been interested in these microfilms. They sent me all 22 the first time for six months and I still wasn't done because I would write some more and then I'd have another simple question. And then I got them another, again for another six months. And now again, I've had them and I've had them now for I think eight months and I have them till August. So when I have questions, I just go back and I look or it's like, oh, I saw that piece of paper. What did it mean? So as to why it didn't change. So I had ordered this book for an odd reason. Again, I have stacks of books that nobody on the planet has. This one is called The Glory Days. It's written, it was written in 1976 by Luther Weigel's son when he died as a tribute. So some things in here are his father's sermons. Some things are tributes to his father. But what I wanted was there was a story that was cited somewhere about how Luther Weigel met his wife. And I didn't want to cite the secondary source. I wanted to cite the primary source. So I ordered this book for 99 cents plus 3.99 shipping. And I thought, well, since I read the chapter on Luther Weigel and his wife, Ruth, I might as well read the whole darn thing. So I did. And so you can see where, um, you know, I'm reading and I've, and I've got my, uh, that was a cup of coffee there. You know, I'm a sloppy reader. But on that page, I read here that it says this, this essay was written by the publisher because he thought Luther Weigel was a wonderful person to work with. And so he writes, he just, he's doing, he's a numbers guy. He's just writing numbers guys stuff. So he said, he says in here, um, we had a list of 300 objections and suggestions from readers from 1952 to 1959, and they were sufficiently plausible to warrant consideration by the committee. So over the years, the committee had accumulated possible changes. So they got together between June 2nd, June 9th, 1969, 59, and the 16th, and they worked through 300 criticisms and subjection, objections. So of course I go back to the archives and I went into the, um, the, legal, um, the legal microfilm where all of the, the contracts were, which 
would you would think would be very boring. And I did. So I didn't like, you know, go through it with a, a fine tooth comb, but I did this time. And I found the list of 300 objections. And on that list is not 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 6, 9 through 11. It's not on that first objection list of 300. So what happened was they went through this list. They came to an agreement on September 1st, 1959. And by contract with the publisher, they would make no more changes. And that was agreed to on October 1st, 1959. David's letter was written on October 22nd, 1959. So why were no changes made? Because David's letter hadn't arrived yet. But what I can see is in the files also, I can see that when they do get together, Luther Weigel kept his word. When they do get together and they look at other suggestions, I can see documentation from 1965 where 1 Corinthians 6 through 9 is on that list. And right next to it, it says 13 pages. Like, look at these 13 pages associated with it. And that's exactly the exchange between David and Weigel. Nobody else had written a letter. That's what tells me there's nobody else that wrote a letter, just David. So, so in 1965, they decide to defer it. But by the time it's 1968, and then it comes to 1969. And in 1969, Stonewall has happened. Gay people are coming out of the closet. The team gets together. They look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do they say those that indulge in homosexual practices? Do they say those who participate in homosexual vices? They pick neither of them. Neither of them. They realize by then this is not about homosexuals. We are 30 years beyond the first translation. The first translation had happened 30 years before that and had not been addressed. We are 30 years more into history. As I said, activism has started and they vote to make it by a vote of seven to three sexual perverts. The problem is that the Living Bible, the NIV, the NASB, all because we've been to those archives, we have looked at the translation notes of all of those Bibles and every single one of them use the RSV as their base text. All of them use the RSV. So the problem became multiplied and certainly multiplied in the Living Bible. They put it in five more places. So that's why it took so long to change. Now, how much time do I have? Ken, do I, am, am I at, what have I got? Have I got how many minutes? Give me a time. I am too interested in what you're saying to have paid attention to the time. Um, <laughs> I think I have 10 minutes. Do I have 10 minutes? Sounds good. Okay, good. Okay. Who's the guy that wrote the letter? That should be the next question, right? Who's the guy that wrote the letter? So I did my cursory looks. Um, I'm pretty good because so many people bother me online that I can find, you know, these nasty people pretty quickly. I've gotten good at it. So I thought, oh, I'll find David Sheldon. I'll find him. And so, no, I couldn't find him. And so when we were at Yale, we happened to one of those nights, there was a woman that was following me online and she had for years. Her name is Tina Wood. And Tina um, is a search angel online. She's on a, in a group of 60,000 people that search for people. They do it for free. And um, she came down. She wanted to meet me. 
and she came down to Yale, drove an hour and 45 minutes through the rain. And she has um, some levels of social anxiety. It was a very big deal for her to come down in the rain to have dinner with me. So she happened to come the night that we found the letters. Happened to, right? Everything's happened to. And so I took Ed into the other room and I said, you know, this is what Tina does. Maybe we should ask Tina to find if anybody in Weigel's family is still living so that we can find some information. Maybe we can find anything. And so we gave Lee, Tina his name, the P.O. box, the date of the letter. We didn't even give her the letter. We were so, you know, um, we were so tight about the letter. And so um, by the morning, she's a night owl. She had found out that I was friends on Facebook with one of Weigel's great grandchildren, but we were interested in David Sheldon. So my original research, I couldn't find a David Sheldon from that time, from that age, assuming an age. But what I thought was, okay, if he's a seminary student, when he wrote this, he's about 20 in his early twenties, he probably hit the AIDS crisis head on. And, I'm a, and I assumed he was dead. And then Ed found uh, a David Sheldon that became a pastor. So that kind of fit where we were. But that David Sheldon was in Michigan. So on a border state to Canada. And that David Sheldon had become a pastor and was in jail for molesting a child. Oh, what an unusual thing. But um, I thought, I don't want my David Sheldon to be dead from AIDS or in prison. I mean, but if it's the story, it's the story. So we, I pushed, I pushed Tina. Tina will tell you, like she was suffering anxiety and there's Kathy, the classic eight, you know, Tina, you got to do this. You got to do this. 11 months later, I got an email and we were corresponding between then. And then she had found him. The story of how she found him is so fascinating, but it, it, it involves her meeting up with someone that probably grew up around when, when David grew up in that area of Canada said he had to have gone to Bishop's college. And she said, I went to Bishop's college. And she said, and she was just a couple of years younger, we found out. And she said, and if he indeed was a gay man at Bishop's college at the time, he is not using his real name. There is just no way because if Wilder came back to the college and said, who is this young whippersnapper? He is not using his real name. So Tina went back and she called then the college in Lenoxville and it was an undergrad, but they taught Greek and Hebrew because they had been a, an Anglican sending college, Anglican pastor sending college in their origins. So David had taken Greek and Hebrew while he was in college, not seminary, also in seminary. And she asked, can we, can I come up to Canada and see your yearbooks? Cause she was going to look for someone that like the name was slightly changed or looked gay or was in the choir and, you know, the drama, we were, you know, anything classically gay. She was going to like, try to figure this out. And she's got tools in her brain that nobody can understand. Well, they said, we've got everything digitized. So she started in, I think, 1957, I tried to trace her steps, even knowing exactly what she did. I still couldn't come up with her results because she's that good. So she started going through yearbooks. And when she got to the right year yearbook, 
she came across this picture and it had his last name, which I won't say now because we're still protecting him. He's 81 years old. So I don't want until the movie and the, and the book come out, we're protecting him. Um, he lives, he's in a fairly isolated place in British Columbia. And it had his last name, comma, David Sheldon, hometown Lennoxville. We knew we had the right guy. So she stayed up all night and she found he did become a unit, a United Church of Canada minister. He was retired and he was 80 and he was alive. So she gave me his phone number. I woke up to an email saying, I'm almost 100% sure I got your guy. I called him at nine o'clock in the morning and I started saying, hi, I'm a researcher. Don't hang up on me. Um, asked him about a letter. Did you write this letter? Yes, I did. Do you have a copy of this letter? No, I don't. Did you ever share this information with anybody? No, I didn't. And I said, nothing. And so then we talked and I said to him, I found your letters. I found it. And your letter was the reason that the RSV changed from homosexual to sexual perverts. It was your letter. And he was positive. First of all, they would have thrown his letter away. But he was also, he said, he was so sure that other people saw this error that he, his words are, he thought hundreds, if not thousands of people would have written the same letter he did. And he is the only person that did. And he is still alive. And then two hours into the call, I asked him the question, you never ask gay people, but I had to. I said, are you a gay man? Yes, I am. When did you come out? I never came out. He never came out. He had been a minister for 37 years in the United Church of Canada. He was partnered with his cousin, Joe, for 23 of those years, went from pastorate to pastorate with him. His sick cousin, Joe, who needed to be cared for. And then David, Reverend David, who was single and a mess, needed someone caring for him. So yeah, what a great partnership. And then he retired and never came out. And he came out at the age of 81 on the stage of GCN in 2019. And um, when I introduced him as the person that produce this piece of history. And I think the finest thing I've produced in terms of on social media, if you Google my name and then an evening with Reverend David from the Reformation Project in 2019, just before we, we shut down, I did an hour and a half interview with him. This is the man that God used to create this historical record that had been hidden for 60 years. And he is everything you want him to be. He's the perfect grandfather. He's the perfect retired minister. He's my friend. And this is the last thing I will say, because we have such a wonderful relationship. He gave me as a gift, his RSV ordination Bible, and I own it. So that's the story. And we're going to change things. Story. Yay. <laughs> and the crowd went wild. 